0: the vessels are much smaller. If you look at our aortas, for example, let's just go with the big vessels. We know actually from the data that the aortas in uh, Chinese people and in in Asian people in general are about 10% smaller. And I tend to now go down the line of, we're not just a PAD kind of a podcast, but I tend to go down the line of treating aneurysms at 5 centimeters rather than the 5.5 centimeters for, for 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 our Caucasian counterparts. So, and, the va- and that reflects exactly what happens in the peripheral vasculature. The SFA, the tibial vessels are at least one or two millimeters smaller than our Caucasian counterparts, which makes bypassing and open techniques much more difficult. With over 500,000 patients treated globally, Impact Admiral Drug Coated Balloon is the market-leading DCB for treatment of femoropopliteal disease. Learn more about how 75% of patients with PAD remain intervention-free for up to five years with Impact Admiral DCB by visiting medtronic.eu forward slash five-year DCB.
1: Hello and welcome to the Vascular Podcast from Radcliffe Vascular. Uh, my name's Andrew Chung and I'm an associate professor of surgery at the National University of Singapore and a vascular and endovascular surgeon at the National University Heart Centre. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined today by uh, three eminent vascular surgical colleagues of mine from Singapore, um, and we want to talk to you about critical limb threatening ischemia and giving you our perspectives from Singapore. Um, our panelists today include an associate professor, June Tang, who's a senior consultant at the Singapore General Hospital. June, another UK uh, graduate from Queen's College, Cambridge, who completed his higher surgical training um, on the University of Cambridge and Adam Brooks rotation, achieving a doctorate of medicine, uh, looking into carotid plaque information. A previous British Society of Endovascular Therapy fellow, he's gone and undergone further endovascular training at Leicester and the Prince of Wales in Sydney. He has been in Singapore for approximately six years now and has a deep and active interest in lower limb research and is one of our clinical trialists here in Singapore. Last but not least, I'd also like to introduce Associate Professor Edward Choke, who is also a vascular surgeon here at Singapore but operating out of Senkang General. He underwent his general and vascular surgical training in Oxford, and he is also uh, one of a few UK trainees to receive the British Society of Endovascular Therapy Endovascular Fellowship. He has a PhD awarded by the St. George's Vascular Institute from the University of London, and is an active researcher with over 100 publications in peer-reviewed journals. And he is also an active clinical trialist here in Singapore. So, Thank you very much all for joining us. Um, Good evening to you all. It's 10 o'clock here in Singapore um, and I hope it's at a slightly earlier time where you all are. Um, You all bring very unique perspectives um, to uh, vascular surgery and the treatment of peripheral arterial disease. Eddie, could I ask you, how have you found the transition from a UK practice to a Singapore practice? And over the time that you've spent here, has your own practice changed? And what are the difficulties that you're finding specific to Singaporean Asians? Thanks, Andrew. My experience is when I
2: practice in the UK, um, probably the proportion of smokers to diabetic uh, peripheral arterial disease is in a region of about 70% um, smokers versus 30% diabetics, whereas now I'm finding that my practice is mostly dealing with 90% diabetic um, CLT. Um, the proportion of uh, clodicans versus CLTi is also different. Um, I'm dealing with more or less uh, 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 98% CLTi, maybe 2% uh, clodicans in Singapore. Um, In terms of the interventions, these are also different. Um, We were already practicing uh, majority endovascular revascularization in the UK already. However, the proportion of endo to open was about 80-20 in the UK. In Singapore, um, the proportion is more or less about 98% endo versus 2% uh, uh, revascularization by the open technique. In fact, I probably remember doing one uh, distal bypass in the whole of last year uh, 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 for um, my uh, PAD patients.
1: um, And these are largely the differences really between UK and Singapore. Thank you, Eddie. Um, June, I, I'm, I'm quite confident your own practice probably reflects all of ours in that a move from the UK to Singapore has really um, sort of pushed forward on endovascular. We don't really do open surgical approaches unless endovascular fails. But could I ask you, if that is the consensus here in Singapore, why is it that the Asian population is so different? Why do you think it is so difficult to treat? And do you think that there's a very dramatic paradigm shift that we've seen in
0: Asia that is going to be replicated
1: elsewhere in the world?
0: Well, first of all, Andrew, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to this podcast and uh... It's a, it's a delight actually to speak with other of my colleagues as well. So just to answer the first bit of the question, I think I echo exactly what Dr. Chokas said. Very much the experience is very different having trained in the UK and Australia. I think that one of the things is, is the anatomy of the vessels. The vessels are much smaller. If you look at our aortas, for example, let's just go with the big vessels we know actually from the data that the aortas in uh, Chinese people and in, in Asian people in general are about 10% smaller. And I tend to now go down the line of, we're well, not just a PAD kind of a podcast, but I tend to go down the line of treating aneurysms at 5 centimeters rather than the 5.5 centimeters for, for our, for our, for our, for our ca- ca- Caucasian counterparts. So and, the va- and that reflects exactly what happens in the peripheral vasculature. The SFA, the tibial vessels are at least one or two millimeters smaller than our Caucasian counterparts, which makes bypassing and open techniques much more difficult. Also, the fact that these patients are diabetic, the multi-level disease that we have in these vessels are about forty to fifty percent. So, whether you're going to plant a bypass, like a fem-pop bypass or a fem-distal bypass, you are doing almost endarterectomies at both levels. So that's going to in, in, increase the length of time of an operation and probably affect the outcome. Second thing of all is that uh, uh, actually getting some good conduit is very difficult. 90% of our CLTI patients, as Eddie said, is actually diabetic. And these diabetics don't have good venous conduits. The infection rates in tropical countries such as this is much higher. And plumbing on an artificial bypass, I think, does very badly. Yes, it may be used as a last resort to increase your blood flow to the foot in kind of no, in basically last ditch attempts after multiple revascularization techniques. But the 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 the, 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 the um, when it takes a, a, an artificial bypass in another manner, but the infection rates are much higher, and blowouts are much higher. And I found that when I first started, I must say, when I first started about eight years ago. I tended to do about 10 bypasses a year. That's almost gone to zero because I can do, we can almost cross any, any lesion now more than 98% of the times using the more complex techniques. So I think it's, a, it's varied. I think the anatomy is really good. And then the last thing of all is our Asian patients are much sicker. If you look at the comorbidities, looking at the data, they are much more sicker than, than our than our Caucasian counterparts. And if you look at how bad their hearts are and doing a major bypass, I think the mortality rates are gonna sky high. So that's one of the reasons why we use more of a minimal footprint, such as using low, low such as these endovascular techniques to buy, get ourselves out of trouble. But I think patients want that too, as well.
1: Thank you, June. That's a, a really nice summary of um, some of the problems that we're all facing here in Singapore. Um, and so uh, this segues quite nicely onto the next thing I really want to discuss. So we, we've we all agreed that an endovascular first strategy, for all the reasons that everyone's mentioned, it is clearly the way that Singaporean vascular surgeons and our colleagues have decided to treat our patients, and we think it's for the best. But we will all... Um, realize and recognize Kat um, very interesting meta-analysis on the paclitaxel controversy. And I just wanted to know what people's thoughts were in the setting of an endovascular first approach to lower limb revascularization. What does the paclidaxel data really mean to all of us now? And how has it impacted on your practices and your choices and how you approach um, a lower limb revascularization? Eddie, could I, could I ask, could I start with you? Thanks, Andrew.
2: Um, when you talk about paclidaxel-coated balloons, um, we need to talk about two things. Firstly, efficacy. And when you talk about efficacy, we need to divide the efficacy in two regions. Firstly, the SFA and popliteal, and secondly, the BTK. The second thing to talk about paclitaxel is the safety issue of paclitaxel. So I'll talk, to, talk through both of these uh, issues separately. In terms of its efficacy, we all know that paclitaxel is effective in SFA and popliteal. Um, the randomized controlled trial data for that is plenty, and there is basically no debate really. However, for BTK, Pactaxel is um, more debatable in terms of its efficacy. We all know from the Medtronic Impact Deep RCT, uh, we showed that in the Pactaxel group, the rates of amputation was nearly threefold compared to the control group where they use standard balloon angioplasty. And that's the reason why the Medtronic's impact Ampheron DCB was withdrawn from the market. And since then, there have been no real big RCTs really. The the last RCT, the last big RCT was the Lutonics RCT for below-the-knee disease. And that, um, uh, in terms of its endpoint, uh, showed uh, a slight uh, favorable outcome for DCBs for below-the-knee arteries in terms of occlusion versus no occlusion. Um, in terms of its safety, uh, the Katsanos meta-analysis tells us that at two years, there is about a 68% increase in mortality, and at five years, there is a 93% increase in mortality. And the higher the dose of paclitaxel the higher the chances of death. So it tells us something. Um, now, paclitaxel in itself, this is a, an anti-cancer drug. Paclitaxel is designed to kill cells. Um, I'm not sure if uh, 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 many people uh, realize this, but paclitaxel was originally derived from the yew tree. And the yew tree is also nicknamed as the tree of death. Every part of the tree is poisonous. Uh, except for the red arrow. And even then, uh, the seed within the red arrow is also poisonous. And in the olden times, people used to commit suicide by eating pieces of the yew tree. In fact, uh, if you look up the uh, internet, uh, uh, there have been instances where cattle uh, um, um, and livestock have all died because somebody has thrown uh, yew tree seeds over the fence. Uh, uh, so, 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 Pachytaxel in itself is very effective. It is designed to kill the cells, and it is designed to kill the smooth muscle cells in the wall of the uh, arteries. And that's why it's so effective at preventing new intimal hyperplasia. But we've all got to heed uh, the results from the Katsanos meta-analysis, which showed an increased mortality. Uh, so, so so, in terms of pacotexel, this is where we're at. We know it is effective for SFA. It is not so effective for BTK. And there are certain uh, safety signals uh, as evidence from the Katsanos meta-analysis.
1: That's great, Eddie. uh, And thank you for setting up uh, the next two points so nicely for me. Um, I'll get back to everything that you've said in just a bit. Um, But with all this talk about below the knee disease, paclitaxel balloons, what we do endo open, um, June, could I invite you to talk about your Malayan trial, please, and to explain the rationale for why you thought it was appropriate to do what you thought that you would achieve by doing it? And could you just share your results with us, please, um, and and what what the future is um, from as from the point of view of a, a PI.
0: Sure. So just uh, just to put a point to it, um, there is no real good evidence for use of paclitaxel coated balloons in the below knee pop area, uh, tibial vessels. There is really a very a lot of conflicting uh, data. The randomised trials don't really highlight really any benefit if you put the data together. Um, recently, the Singapore trial, the RCT from. Singapore General Hospital from the interventional radiologist suggested a worse amputation-free survival using paclitaxel balloons over plain angioplasty, um, which was highlighted again with the impact uh, deep trial that uh, Dr. Choke has just uh, spoken about. So there is no real good evidence, to be frankly honest, for BTK, paclitaxel, drug-coded balloons. So, in fact, um, the Malayan trial was really there to really test in the, you know, all RCTs choose the best possible lesions. What I really wanted to do with Malayan was to actually show in what is a very, very much an everyday practice in Singapore, how bad our lesions are in the BTK area. So I just put a registry of 50 patients, and I decided to take it from two centers, one from Singapore General Hospital and one from Kutipuat Hospital with uh, Dr. Leong Chou Ren as the, as the PI there, a site PI there we combined our data over about a 9 to 10 month period and basically the we looked we wanted to take the worst lesions the tar c and d lesions in the setting of clti so these were not claudicants so what we did was we concentrated on the btk lesions um, and i must say uh these some, some of these patients over i think it was 94% of these patients had uh, were diabetic 50% had end stage renal failure Now, if you put it into perspective, these demographics—these are the worst kind of uh, statistics. If you compare it to any of the randomised controlled trials, where diabetes is about makes up maximum 30, 40% of the population, Uh, ESRF is only making about 20, 30% at best. So these are really bad, you know, really start off. And if you look at Rutherford five, Rutherford six lesions, they made up about 94% of the population. So rest pain was about 6%. And if you look at the mean target lesion lengths, there were nearly 20 centimeters. So you're looking at all men CTOs were almost made up half of these lesions. So these are the worst lesions you're going to get in this real, real life setting. And what we found was that if you prepared the lesion well with a POBAR and then for a angioplasty and then coated the whole of the lesions, I'm talking about from do, do not have any geographical miss, um, our six and 12 month data is not bad in the context of what, you're, of what you have. So technical success rate was very high, as you expect with any endo technique, 100%, I think the technical success rate was. Um, the six and 12 month amputation free survivals, over 80% at six months, it drops down to about 70% at, at one year. Uh, target lesion primary patency at six months was in the high 80% and then dropped down to mid 70% at one, at one year. Um, mortality rate wasn't bad, you know, it's about the usual, what you expect for this type of population of patients, one year mortality rate, about 12, 13%. So in what we can do, and then improvement in Rutherford's score. So the, uh, there was at least 60% improvement in Rutherford by one Rutherford score at one year from baseline and wound healing over well, total complete wound healing at one year. In this setting, was around uh, 65%, which is not bad when you compare what these lesions were, well, what these wounds were when they presented, and with very bad Wi-Fi scores at the beginning, you and a bad to baseline toe pressures of about uh, about 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 40. You know, you it, those those kind of results are real real world data, and you don't see those in the randomised trials. And what I found with these paclitaxels is that basically the reintervention rates were much lower than what we've had from a historical cohort using conventional balloon angioplasties. But what I really think actually is may not well be drug. I think it's the way you, you prepare the lesion and actually angioplasty those long CTOs um, and how you, you, you can keep up the balloon. That's some of the tech, newer techniques of keeping the balloon up longer, using long balloons, using high pressure, non-compliant balloons, using specialist balloons if you have problems like cutting balloons to make sure you face the lesion properly. I think... Those are things that are very important, and the drug really only adds to it to prevent the neointimal hyperplasia that occurs towards about 30, to 30, 30 days onwards. So actually, to do all the lead problems with re-stenosis, your drug only really deals with um, uh, 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 neointimal hyperplasia and not recoil. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with it, but the question is, we could do better. June, thank
1: you for that, that summary. Um, there's, a, there's a few things that immediately spring to mind um, when I, I saw the data and I've heard you now talk. Um, two things, really. With such a preponderance of diabetics and end-stage renal failure, we know that the below-the-knee disease is probably mostly calcified disease. Um, and so it really goes to the last points that you were making. When you're preparing these lesions, um, These drug coated balloons require a much longer, prolonged inflation time as per their IFU to deliver the drug. So, do you not, is there, I know you'll never be able to unpick this, but how much of the drug really has an effect on this as opposed to just treating these? Um, long segment lesions with newer long balloons, as you said, prolonged inflation time, uh, non-compliant balloons. You kind of mentioned all of those things. How much do you think neo-intermal hyperplasia um, really plays a part in the below-the-knee um, vasculature?
0: That's a very good question. Um, I don't think anyone can answer that question truthfully, to be frankly honest. Um, yes, calcium, they say, is a barrier for drug absorption. How much truth truth to that is I don't really know. If you look at some of the data that's coming out now, uh, from the look at BarLux P3 using the PASIO 18 lux periflexal balloon, you look at the calcification rates in the BTK area. They're very high. Moderate to severe calcification was nearly two thirds. But they're still getting very good results of uh, low target lesion revascularization rates. Even our local data using the PASIO 18 lux balloon, you know our reinterventions are very low, despite you know. 70% having severe calcification of their BTK vessels. So I am not sure how much that really holds true. What well, I think neointermioid hypoplasia really kicks in at about one month, after one month. So if your re-intervention rates are before one month, I think there's a recoil element or having not effaced the lesion properly or just very bad recoil disease. So I don't think neointermioid plays all in my role. If you look at the, some of the data with just POBAR below the knee, and we've achieved rates using high-pressure, non-compliant balloon rates of over 70% at one year, and then if drug only adds about 10%, which in some of the data it does show in a lot of the studies, to about 80%, there must be, a, there must be more than just re- recoil or just more than near-intimum high at work here to actually only get that extra benefit from drug. Thanks, June. And just very quickly,
1: you've got a long segment below the knee CTO, you've got it open, you've po it, you've drugged it, you've done whatever you need to do, it looks beautiful and angio, wound is healing. What is your post-operative uh, antiplatelet and anticoagulation regimen of choice and why?
0: So when you've given uh, drug, a drug uh, coating to any peripheral vasculature vest or whatever, um, normally, what I do is I do I do a dual antiplatelet therapy, i.e. with aspirin and with plavex or Clopidogrel, for three months. The data there is probably level two C evidence. It's not great evidence for that, but I just I, I prefer that because there's just a slightly higher risk of early uh, thrombosis rates of those vessels. So we use that kind of regimen. But I've actually gone away from that, become more selective, whereby I even actually put patients on uh, an antiplatelet agent and a uh, uh, low-dose anti-thrombotic like Seralta, 2.5 milligrams BD. We have that here at SGH on the pharmacy. And I look at them and especially I do that in multi level segments, especially if I think there's going to be an early chance of recall or uh, early thrombosis rates. And I think for ESRF, I think there's subpopulations of patients, those with bad hearts, with congestive heart disease or cardiomyopathy, and those with ESRF, I would actually put them on that kind of regime. So I think you need a bit more than aspirin, uh, but what exactly? There's not enough evidence to suggest which one. Thank you.
1: And I just want to stick with um, below the knee disease. Um, Thank you both um, for your insights on it. And thank you, June, particularly for your your really encouraging trial data. Um, But a lot of that is is surrounding sort of still Paclitaxel. And I wanted to frame this conversation um, earlier on specifically talking about the paclitaxel controversy and what it all means, um, knowing full well that then we would go on to talking about below-the-knee disease and, and, and further paclitaxel devices. Um, Eddie, Sirolimus, um, could you tell us a little bit more about that, um, a little bit more about the work you're doing in that space um, and where you see Sirolimus as a future technology, and particularly as it may apply to the below-the-knee um, vascular. Um, thank you, Andrew.
2: Um, I see sirolimus as a potentially exciting alternative to paclitaxel for both uh, SFA and pulmonary disease, and also for uh, BTK disease. Um, having heard, you know, Dr. Tang's um, um, data for the Merlion trial. I have to say that it is also exciting that we are getting this uh, uh, more updated uh, data on paclitaxel used in BTK. And similar to Dr. Tang's Malayan trial, which looks at Luminor's uh, uh, paclitaxel drug coated balloon in BTK, there's also evidence uh, from China looking at the ORCID uh, DCBs and they've also recently published very good data for the use of paclitaxel in BTK disease. Um, and Medtronic, uh, although their initial uh, Impact Deep showed a negative result, they have gone to devise another uh, BTK paclitaxel drug-coated balloon, the Impact 014, and they have also recently reported very good outcomes for that for BTK disease. So, so, so the first thing to say is that. Pachytaxel may be coming back for BTK disease, and it is an exciting area to watch. Now, for me, Sirolimus has got certain advantages over Pachytaxel. Um, the cardiologists have known this for many, many years, and they've moved on from using paclitaxel eluding stents to using Sirolimus eluding stents for the last 15 years. And the reason for that is because, first of all, when they looked at the uh, meta-analysis of sirolimus eluding stents versus paclitaxel eluding stents, they can see a very clear difference in superiority for their sirolimus eluding stents in preventing uh, restenosis in terms of angiographic appearance and also in terms of freedom from target lesion revascularization. And when they actually looked at the differences between sirolimus and paclitaxel. Uh, Sirolimus has certain uh, superiority. Uh, uh, both will inhibit uh, uh, smooth muscle cell proliferation and endothelial cell proliferation. But in addition, Sirolimus also inhibits smooth muscle cell migration to a much greater degree than paclitaxel. As I mentioned earlier on, uh, paclitaxel was originally designed as an anti-cancer drug. It kills things. Whereas Sirolimus is an immunosuppressive drug, and that means it can prevent inflammation. And this is also evident when they looked at the uh, uh, coronary arteries uh, uh, histology, they found much less inflammation in their sirolimus eluting stents. The third thing is with regards to the uh, differences in terms of the cytotoxic, uh, cytotoxic versus uh, cytostatic. So serolimus is cytostatic, which means it just prevents the cell uh, uh, cycle um, from uh, it arrests the cell cycle. Uh, whereas uh, pegataxel is cytotoxic. It prevents a cell from dividing. And at that point, it kills off the cells. So from that point of view, intuitively, you would think that Sirolimus is safer than paclitaxel. Then the other thing is that when you look at the use of Sirolimus in BTK arteries, I, and I think this is in terms of the difference in terms of the delivery. Sirolimus is a little bit different to Pachytaxel. Uh, uh, the disadvantage with Sirolimus is that it is very difficult to get it into the vessels. And when you get it into the vessels, it is very difficult to let it stay there. Pacitexel is advantageous in that it is easier to get into the vessels, and when it gets to the vessels, it stays there much longer. And Medtronic has got data to prove that Pacitexel stays in there for as long as six months, and you could never get that with Sirolimus. And that has pushed the various industries to go on to develop much better ways of delivering uh, uh, drugs into the artery. And uh, the two main uh, uh, companies that deal with Sirolimus coated balloons very innovative in how they choose to deliver the sirolimus into the, the artery end, and just from the experience alone, uh, uh, um, I can see that there's much less flaking and there's much less uh, uh, dislamelization. So when you're dealing with very small BTK arteries, that's an obvious advantage. So I see that as a as a real advantage in terms of using sirolimus.
1: Thank you. Um- Can you just tell me a little bit more about Sirolimus as a compound itself and what its history is and what its um, safety profile is now? Because we're all very heightened and very concerned, and it would be very interesting to hear where its history is. And what we don't want as a vascular surgical community is to get excited about another compound. Another drug, only to find five years down the line there is another meta-analysis that this time shows that there's a mortality signal with cerulomics. You know, it's obviously something that we're desperately trying to avoid because we do need these technologies. So maybe a little bit more about the compound, its history, and and where you think the future is going um, with cerulomics um, uh, balloons. Um, sirolimus was
2: discovered uh, from a microorganism. It is, uh, its other name is also rapamycin. And uh, its use is mainly in uh, renal transplant. And we give sirolimus, tacrolimus to our patients mainly to prevent inflammation. As, as, and it is also used as a, a primarily an immunosuppression. It acts on the cell cycle. Uh, on the G1 phase, so uh, and this G1 phase is when it stops the cell, it arrests the cell cycle at that point. So basically, it just puts the cell to sleep. So it doesn't kill off the cell, as opposed to paclitaxel, which kills off the cell entirely. So paclitaxel is extremely uh, uh, effective from that point of view. So when you apply it into the intima and media. It will uh, kill off the smooth muscle cells and endothelial cells, and this is exactly what you want it to do. However, there's a potential for much more collateral damage because we know that a lot of the Peketaxel gets washed downstream and we find them in other parts of the body, such as the myocardium, the lungs, and everywhere else. So from that point of view, it's potentially dangerous. Now, Sirolimus as well, there will be some collateral damage. It will be uh, uh, also washed downstream to other parts of the body, but because it is primarily and immunosuppressant, it doesn't cause, in my uh, uh, mind,
1: as much damage to the, the body when you apply it. Thank you. So, Eddie, can I just ask you, therefore, in your practice now, are you routinely applying drug-coated balloons below the knee? If you are, what's your first choice? And after that, same question to you about your, um, your sort of post-op medication regimen for your patients who've got these sort of long-segment CTOs? Um, The answer to your question is
2: yes. I do routinely apply uh, sirolimus coated balloons to both uh, SFA and popliteal disease and also to below-the-knee disease. Um, However, not all cases. Uh, There are certain cases where Cerolimus coated balloons, or paclitaxel coated balloons for that matter, I find do not work as well in uh, BTK disease. And these two scenarios are number one, when there is a lot of calcification, I believe that it is harder for the drug to be transferred across very highly calcified arteries into the media and also to the adventitia. And secondly, for lesions which require safari, uh, so when you require retrograde access, most of the time it is subintimal, and I find that in those areas, drug coated balloons don't work as well. So in those two uh, scenarios, I may not apply drug coated balloons.
1: Um, the second question, what was the second question again, uh, Andrew? Sorry. Just about how, what's your sort of antiplatelet and anticoagulation regimen after these patients? Um, antiplatelet uh, regime is dual antiplatelets with aspirin and clopidogrel for at least six months. Okay, thank you very much. And do you find uh, River Roxban has any role to play in your sort of current algorithm post CTO angioplasty? I find. That I've not got
2: much experience with using rivaroxaban. Um, primarily, and I was discussing this with uh, Doctor Tang earlier on this afternoon, actually, uh, because our pharmacies we haven't stocked up the low dose uh, rivaroxaban, two point five milligrams yet.
1: That's a that's a very fair point, and actually quite a difficult and can sometimes be unsurmountable challenge for some units. Um, Thank you very much, everyone. We're coming close to the hour, so I'm just going to slowly wrap things up. Eddie, thank you very much for everything that you've uh, spoken on uh, thus far. Maybe just one or two minutes on where you see the future, what we're going to be doing in five years' time, and um, where you see our practice moving and changing towards. I think in um, five
2: years' time, we're going to see a lot of new, exciting technologies. And that's why I find our area or specialty to be highly um, exciting. Um, for BTK, um, I think we're very close to achieving um, an effective biological therapy, be it sirolimus or paclitaxel. I think uh, there will be more data coming out in the next uh, three to five years. And these are level one data, uh, randomized control trials. And secondly, we're also looking at uh, uh, stents for the use for BTK. Uh, there are multiple ongoing RCTs looking at the use of uh, drug-eluting stents. And one of these is the live uh, BTK, uh, uh, which is, I think, uh, being uh, uh, run by uh, Ramon Bacco, uh from uh, uh, Sydney. Um, so I think we're probably looking at uh, uh, more data on the use of stents for BTK and uh, we're also looking at uh, how to deal with calcification for BTK uh, and this means uh, uh, the use of little uh, tripsy balloons and also the use of arthrectomy devices as a vessel prep for BTK in combination with various drug coding technology uh, uh, for the use of BTK. So CLTI will, treatment will continue to improve, and uh, in five years' time, I think our practice for BTK arteries uh, will be very different from what it is today. It will be much more extensive.
1: And June, same question to you just to finish everything off. Five
0: years' time, what are we going to be doing? We're not going to do any bypasses. That's that's I see. I'd be honest with you. It's not because we can't do it. It's because there won't be the skill to do it. Um, I'm going to be very honest with you. I think it's a, it's a customer-driven society. Patients do not want open cuts in their in their legs. Um, the disease process, I think, is a big barrier to making a big long bypass successful. If you look at the demographics, BTK disease, below the ankle disease, is very significant in about 20% of our CLTI patients. And as you know, we need a a good inflow and a good outflow, I think. And the vein quality is so poor because 90% of these are diabetics, I think. And ESRF is an independent prognostic indicator of outcome. We've looked at the worst R6 patients, the R Rutherford 6. The mortality rate at one year is nearly 30%. Who would want to bypass at that kind of rate i would be honest with you um i don't think it's just a question i mean i think it's very good for redo surgery but i think uh for last-ditch surgery but not i don't think many of these patients would want it as i said i think we agree with eddie i think there's a lot more technology coming there's a lot more to work on the btk area i think our wound salvage rates for diabetic foot is excellent in this country better than in some of the, in some of the first, well in, well, in the US and in the UK, because we actually look after our own wounds. And our diabetes is more malignant compared to some of the diabetes that we see in the Western population. So I think we're doing well in wound care. I think wound healing, wound care, I think there's exciting areas as well. Thank you, June. Um, and it just
1: leaves me with um, the uh, task of saying thank you to you all Thank you, Eddie. Thank you, June. It has been a, at least for me, uh, fascinating um, look at the treatment of uh, CLTI uh, in Singapore, as and and hopefully it can be applied to a, a wider Asian perspective. Um, if any of the viewers have any particular questions on anything that we've discussed, I hope you don't mind if we maybe forward some emails to you all. Um, And I very much look forward to having you all on again uh, on either a similar or a separate topic in the near future. So thank you very much and uh, enjoy your sleep. It's almost half 11 here. So good night, everybody. Thank you.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Radcliffe Vascular and is sponsored by Medtronic. To view the series, head to Radcliffvascular.com forward slash vascular podcast. You can also find us on all well-known podcast platforms and follow us on Twitter at Radcliffe Thanks for listening.